Well, good morning again. Here we go. Uh, Solomon compares the study of the Bible to mining, to the mining of gold. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find a vein that has enough gold in it to make it worth it. But when you do, that vein of gold will enrich your life. And that's what we do in this invisible series. We are searching for veins of gold that might be a little harder to uncover and that are not so easily mined. And this morning we take that exploration into the New Testament once again. And we're going to look and spend some time with Andrew. Not the youth pastor, but the disciple. We're going to explore a few quick facts about the apostle, the disciple Andrew. Then we're going to look at four scenes in his life, and then we'll sum it all up. So let's get started. If you have your sermon notes, they're in your worship folder. Yay. Some quick facts about Andrew. Um, from the handful of passages in which he appears, we can make five observations about who he was. Number one, Andrew's name means manly. It's a Greek name. It, it comes from the word, the Greek word for man. Uh, the name, uh, just that's what it means. Um, it's interesting that Andrew's name is Greek. His brother's name is, is Aramaic. And his parents have Jewish names. So it seems to be quite a, you know, freeform family. But Andrew, as, as we begin to study his life and what we know of him, he is like his name. He's bold, he's decisive, he's deliberate. He's not, he's not a wimp, he's not feeble, he's not, I don't know. But he was driven by a deep passion for truth. And he's willing to subject himself to hardship to find that truth. Observation number two, or some quick facts about him. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. He's Peter's brother. Perhaps his most distinguishing feature in the scripture is, oh, it's Andrew, the, the brother of Peter, of Simon. He is never referred to, or Peter is never referred to as Andrew's brother. Andrew's always Peter's brother. And since Peter is always listed first, it seems that either Andrew was younger or let's just face it, not quite as important as Peter. In the two lists of the disciples, um, when, the, when they're listed in Acts 1 and Mark 3, Andrew does come right after Peter, James, John, Andrew. So he's close to the inner circle of three, but not quite there. Number three, Andrew's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. Like his brother and several other disciples, he liked to catch fish. That's what he did for a living. In both Matthew and in Mark, he encounters Jesus while he's doing what? He's near the shoreline. He's with his brother, Peter. Luke 5 gives a similar account, but Luke doesn't mention Andrew as being there. Luke does, however, add that James and John, also brothers, were partners with Peter in this little fishing expedition. And it seems like then, you know, Peter's the more prominent role in the family business than Andrew. Uh, Luke says Jesus gets into the boat that belongs to Peter, and then there's this other boat that belongs to James and John. So where's Andrew? Uh, we don't know. It could support the idea that Andrew was Peter's younger brother. But in all three accounts, Jesus tells the fishermen in some various form, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they follow. What's curious 
You might not find this curious. I found it curious. After the resurrection, remember, they go back up to the Sea of Galilee, and they all go fishing, and John tells us who went fishing, John 21, 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Where's Andrew? Well, he's, he's, <laughs> might be relegated to the two other disciples. It's probably what he is. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that he would be there without his brother since they were in this thing together. But that doesn't seem particularly important to Andrew. Whatever. Name me, don't name me. I don't know. We never get any hint that, that that bothered him. Number four, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. See, this all starts with John the Baptist. The Gospel of John has a very different version about how Andrew met Jesus. And we're going to look at that in depth in just a moment. But that meeting of Jesus is arguably Andrew's most important role in the scriptures. He began as a follower or a disciple of John the Baptist. And so he's down south at Bethany beyond Jordan at the time when Jesus is baptized. And Andrew is there because of John, not because of Jesus. He wanted to hear his teaching and his ministry. And he was there to hear John. Number five, does, Andrew is really the first disciple to follow Jesus. Since the Gospel of John records that Andrew followed Jesus before any of the other disciples, and it's the two of them, and it doesn't name the other one, the Byzantine church, the church in the east, referred to Andrew as the, uh, the protoclete or the, the first called one. That's how he, that's his moniker. They, they call him the first, call, the first called. And that's pretty much his biggest claim to fame for them. So that's it. Those are the facts that we know about Andrew, and it isn't much. He is listed in 12 verses in the Gospels and once in Acts. And the time in Acts is really just in Acts 1. It's right after the ascension, and it just lists all the disciples who were in the upper room waiting after they'd come back from that, that moment. And then the New Testament goes silent. Andrew never appears again. When we do find him in the Gospels, it's often just a casual reference in passing. Here's who was there, and it's Andrew's among them. He lived his life in the shadows. He lived his life in the shadow of his brother. There are, however, I think, four scenes in his life in which he is, like, almost important. <laughs> and so we're going to look at those and see what we can learn from him. We're going to look at some, some geographical places. So there's a map here that kind of shows you where we'll be so you can get to get the idea. I Oh, I guess I should have made those names a little bit larger. <laughs> you see Jerusalem. That's where we'll end up. You see this Beth, it's called Beth Arabah. I couldn't find Bethany beyond Jordan on my computer program. It's, that's where that Bethany, that's where it says it is, but it's on the other side. Bethany beyond Jordan means it's on the other side of the Jordan, okay, by definition. It's, so that's about where it is at the top of the Dead Sea. And then we have Capernaum at the top and Bethsaida, where he was really from, but lived in Capernaum. So those are the places we'll be. Down south, when I say down south, he's down at Beth Arabah, or well, he's down at Bethany beyond Jordan. And uh, the stories take place then at, at Bethany, at the Sea of Galilee, at Capernaum, and Bethsaida, and Jerusalem. So, four scenes in the life of Andrew. Scene number one is at the baptism um, of Jesus. 
If you have your Bibles, John chapter 1. John 1, verse 35 says this. The next day, John was there again with, his, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So we know that Andrew was down south at, at Bethany beyond Jordan, initially as a follower of John the Baptist. He's far from home. He's hanging around John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, oh, look, there's the Lamb of God. Apparently, he'd taken a break from his fishing position, um, his job on the Sea of Galilee. He's come down, clear down 70, 75 miles south to hang out um, with John the Baptist. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Andrew is someone who is really searching and seeking and eager to find the Messiah. He's caught up in the preaching of John the Baptist, which was the, he was the forerunner of Christ, who's announcing he's going to come. And, he's, and so Andrew's down. He wants to hear it for himself. And he gets caught up in this messianic expectation that John preached. Andrew couldn't wait. Is this the time when they're going to fulfill the covenant promises to David and to Abraham? Oh, man, I hope Messiah is coming and he's near. And so he goes down to, to Bethany, down in the south, to hear personally from John the Baptist. Verse 37 in John 1. When the two disciples heard him say this, they heard him say, behold, the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. Huh. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Andrew was looking for the Messiah. He'd come to John and, and spent the afternoon with the Savior. That must have been amazing. And what's the first thing that Andrew did after he saw the Messiah? He told his brother. It's the first thing he did. Which is why I hear youth pastor Andrew got named after disciple Andrew. That you would tell people about the Savior. And what a testimony and what a pattern for life as this story unfolds. So Andrew and Peter initially meet Jesus down in the Jordan Valley. After they're there, oh, I, I didn't read the verse. I'm like, where did it say that? I'm thinking to myself, it must say that in the text. We didn't read verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother. There you go. Simon, and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. He changes his name right away. Wow. But the first thing Andrew did was take his brother, Peter, or Simon, to Jesus. So after this initial meeting down in the south, what do they do? Well, they go back to Galilee, back to fishing. It's probably a year, upwards of a year later, that Jesus makes his way up to Galilee, and he comes across these two brothers once again. Matthew 4, verse 18. Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out for, to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. We often think, you know, that's the first approach they've ever had with him. But about a year before, they'd, they'd had some contact with Jesus. 
And Andrew was privileged to have met him on that day when he was announced as Messiah by John the Baptist. And he's right there with Peter, introduced Peter to Jesus. What an honor. So when Jesus comes up, they follow. And I think we see in Andrew someone who values the individual person. Jesus picked him to be a part of his team, his inner circle, just the 12, who saw the importance of one-to-one relationships. That That was Andrew. And when it came to dealing with people, Andrew appreciated the value of just the one person. And we're going to see this play out in his life in the other scenes. See, Peter was good one-on-one. We don't know how good he was in preaching. He never is recorded to have preached. But preaching could be a lot easier than one-on-one, let me tell you, because nobody asks questions. And Andrew was effective one-on-one. His first act after meeting the Messiah is to go find his brother, introduce his brother to the Messiah too. And that act sets the tone for his life and for his ministry. Scene two is at the feeding of the 5,000, John 6. The next significant sort of role that he has is in, is in John 6. Jesus is there out trying to get away. He's up in the north. There's another map, I believe. And, and up there at, um, he's in Capernaum. And I really got to remember to make those bigger. And you can see Bethsaida at the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's his hometown, but he's not really living in Capernaum. And so they're ministering out at, at Bethsaida. And then they go out into the wilderness somewhere over there. They go, and and they're just trying to get away, get a breath of fresh air. But the multitudes track him down. And it's just before Passover, about a year before the crucifixion. John 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, The Jewish Passover festival was near. He's up there, he's resting, he's kind of getting away, but they can see him coming, they're on the hill, and here here come the people. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, well, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Jesus says, you know, we got to feed these people. And he asked Philip, where can we get bread? Why ask Philip? Well, he's a little bit like Andrew. He's a local. He is from Bethsaida. They're not far from Bethsaida. He would know about local food supplies. He also had met Jesus down at Bethany beyond Jordan. And when he did that, he brought Nathaniel to meet Jesus. So he does a quick accounting, must have talked to Judas, find out how much is in the money bag. They only had about 200 denarii in their treasury. You're going to need a lot more money if you're going to buy food for this crowd. And Philip looks out and said, this is just overwhelming. The need's too big. I don't know what to do. Enter Andrew who had been kind of working behind the scenes, trying to figure something out. He'd found a boy who was carrying his lunch. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, lest we missed that, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? 
barley loaves are the, the cheapest meal you can get. It's just, that was the, the cheapest local grain, and, and it's what poor people ate. The fish are probably dried or pickled, maybe those, you know, like those little sardine things. Andrew's discover, discovery of this boy is, is beyond, I mean, it's not, not going to feed all these people. What are you going to do? But he comes to Jesus, he makes this suggestion, well, at least we got this, this to start with or something. He's, he's, a, he's a, a man of common sense. He's the kind who kind of stabilizes and, and, well, at least we've got this, Jesus. Now, it's going to take a huge miracle to, to feed all these people. I realize that, but here's what we got. But notice what he did. He introduces somebody else to Jesus. Who? The little boy. He says, here's the boy. He's got a lunch. Here's what I can do. I can introduce people to Jesus. And he knew this little guy met Jesus. The offering wasn't going to be enough, but you know, I also know Jesus. And what's he going to be able to do with just this one lunch? You see, Andrew believed. Andrew believed in Jesus. And so Andrew did the best he could. Here's one food source. Would anybody else got one? He knew, I think, that Jesus could have created food out of nothing, and Jesus could have. But that's not the way Jesus likes to work. He likes to take what we have and multiply it. He wants us to be a part of it. He takes the sacrificial and often insignificant gifts of people who give them faithfully and multiply them, which is what he did here in John 6. Because, you see, there are some people who aren't going to play in the band unless they can hit the big drum unless they can get the attention. James and John and Peter, kind of, that's where they were, but not Andrew. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus. Here's a little boy who can meet Jesus because he's got a lunch. He had a little craving for honor, and deep down, he really, truly believed in who Jesus was. In both of those scenes we've seen so far, he brings someone to Jesus. Scene three, it's now the next Passover. It's a year later. This is the big Passover, <laughs> the last week of the life of Christ. It's a year later. The triumphal entry has, has just taken place. And in John 12, verse 20, it says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. <laughs> Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Okay, a group of Gentiles, your text might say Greeks, same thing. They're, they're, they're non-Jewish people. They'd come to Jerusalem to worship during the Passover. And these guys, they don't want to just hear Jesus preach. They want to meet him. They want to talk to him. The triumphal entry has just happened, and Jesus is surrounded by crowds in this last week of his life. And the crowds are kind of in the they're protecting Jesus mode because they can't arrest him and do stuff with all these people around. They'll get caught. And these Greeks, have, seems like they've probably heard what Jesus has been doing. They probably heard about the triumphal entry. Maybe they were there. Maybe, maybe they had gone and interviewed Lazarus who had just gotten raised from the dead. You know, maybe they had, they had seen and heard what Jesus had done, heard about the man born blind. And they wondered if this Jesus really was the Messiah, and they're honestly seeking and searching, but they want to hear from him directly, which would 
better off in private. But they're Gentiles. They probably noticed that Philip and Andrew, they got Greek names. And John makes a point of telling us that, that Philip's from Bethsaida up in the north in the, the less Jewish area. And if any of the disciples might be able to, to lend a sympathetic ear to the Greeks, it would be Philip. And so Philip could have said, okay, stay here. I know the guy and I'll let's go. I can take you to him. But he doesn't. He goes and finds who? Andrew. Because Andrew's the one who will bring people to Jesus. And together they went to see Jesus and told him about these Greek people. They must have had to press through the crowd to get Jesus' attention and wait for just the right moment when he pauses, takes a breath. Yeah, these guys want to come see you. Now, we're really not sure if they get a private audience. John doesn't tell us. What he goes on to tell us is, basically, the time of my departure is here. I'm going to die, and I've got to give up my life. And once I die, the same saving grace that I'm now offering to the, to the Israelites, I will offer to the Gentiles. So he doesn't really say it, but they might just have to wait till, till then because I've got, I've got more important things. All right, I need to die to provide salvation. It's a tough passage. Saving grace will be available to the Gentiles, but not yet. We see once again Andrew doing what Andrew does best. He brought these men to the Savior. Philip wasn't sure how to handle the situation. He was confused. Andrew's not confused. They want to see Jesus. I know the heart of Jesus. He wants to see people. I'm going to bring them. Let's go see what happens. And when somebody needed to see the Savior, he brought them to the Savior. I mean, I'm sure what Andrew thought Jesus would want was to have a conversation. Because these Gentiles, they are definitely sinners. I mean, they're Gentiles. And wouldn't Andrew assume that somebody who wanted to see Jesus, Jesus would want to see? Here he is, without prejudice. They're Gentiles. He knew Jesus, and Andrew found that Jesus was someone who deeply, in whom he deeply believed and would want to talk to them. Scene number four, last scene, really short. They're on the Mount of Olives. After the last week of Christ's life, you got the death, the resurrection. I'm sorry, that's not true. You've, they're on the Mount of Olives, still in this last week of Jesus' life. Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Okay, he's predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, just the four of them, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Mark's the only one who records that it's just these four on the Mount of Olives as Jesus begins to give his Olivet Discourse. Andrew was like these other three. He wanted to know about the future. He was curious about when the destruction of the temple would happen. And what would be the signs? How do we know it's near? He was curious. But Jesus, he doesn't tell them when. Jesus is more concerned about what? He's more, con more concerned about preparing them for the trials that lie ahead. I'm not going to give you dates and signs. They didn't need to know the deadlines and the timelines. They needed to follow Jesus, which Andrew had done 
from his first encounter down at Bethany beyond Jordan. After that scene, Andrew disappears from the text, except for the list and the one mention after the ascension in Acts 1, where he's listed with all the other disciples. But as for scenes in which he showed up, that's it. That's all there is. So what's important from his life? What can we learn? What are some lessons? I think in these four scenes, we can discover what's really important to Andrew. And hopefully we can discover then what should be important to us. I think Andrew shouts down through time that four things are really very important. Number one, what's of most important importance? People. People. Andrew's a missionary. He brought people to Jesus over and over and over again. He started with his brother down in the Jordan Valley. He brought a kid with a lunch when he was up in Galilee. And then without any prejudice, he brought these Gentiles, Gentiles to Jesus. When Philip didn't know what to do, Andrew did bring him to Jesus. One of the things that is important to us is, is, is evangelism is best done in the context of relationships. And Andrew would agree, he's all about relationships. Are we too busy trying to get ahead or to grow some big old monstrous church? It's got to be about relationships, folks. It's about who we are and who we know and how we can interconnect. Number two of most importance is faith. I look at these scenes and I see a man who has a deep interest in spiritual things. He took his, what we would call a vacation to go down south and hear John the Baptist preach personally. It is there he gets to spend an afternoon with Jesus and his hopes for what? For the coming Messiah grow within him. And maybe after a year of mulling all that over, he sees Jesus up on his home turf in Galilee and Jesus says, why don't you come follow me? And he's ready and he says yes. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus. What I find fascinating is that in the wilderness, when Jesus wanted to feed 5,000, and when those Greeks wanted to come see Jesus, Andrew's knee-jerk reaction is what? Well, just bring him to Jesus, and we'll see what he can do. Because that's who Jesus is. I've left everything to follow him. Something that seems impossible, it's okay. I'm with Jesus. Let's see what he does. What do we do? when we face an impossible situation, when we decide something can't be done, most often we just don't do anything. If Moses had taken that attitude, the Jews would still be in Egypt. If David had taken that attitude, poor old Goliath, he'd still be running around taunting the Israelites. If Joshua felt that way, the, the walls of Jericho, you could visit them today as a museum. Because you never know in advance what God may do. So don't rule out the possibility of God stepping in. Andrew seems to say, I don't always know what that might be, but I know Jesus. I know what he's like, and I believe him, and I trust him since the days down at the Jordan. Number three, he says, of most importance is the kingdom. From that evening in the Jordan Valley, around the time of the baptism of Jesus, to sitting on the Mount of Olives with the Savior, 
He's saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? What's at the heart of that? The heart of that is a desire for God to fulfill his promises to, to Abraham and to David. He's passionate for the kingdom. He cares about the individual, but he also cares about the big picture. God, let your kingdom come. What's God doing in the world? He's interested in God fulfilling his promises. The kingdom is important. And number four of most importance is humility. I think it is fair to say that Andrew shows his fair share of humility. I mean, the very fact that he went to get his brother Peter, you know, human nature might have said, well, this is what I got. Peter's the big brother. He's always getting everything. I've been under this guy's shadow my entire life. I'm dominated by my brother. And now I've found the Messiah. I'm just going to bask in my singular privilege for a while. But he wasn't like that. He knew that as soon as he told Peter, and Peter embraced the Messiah, he'd be right back under the shadow of his big brother. But he did it anyway. In fact, he's always biblically in the shadow of his brother. And it takes a very special kind of person to be a leader with a servant's heart. And that's Andrew. He never wrote a letter in the New Testament. We have no record of him founding a church. He never preached to the multitudes that we noticed. He isn't even mentioned in Acts except in that one list. We don't even know what happened to him after the day of Pentecost. Whatever he did, he did it behind the scenes. He was never really part of that inner circle of three. Peter, James, John, then once in a while you get Andrew. Was he slighted? You don't get that sense at all. Because he had the privilege of hearing of Jesus first, that he was the Lamb of God. And Andrew is one of those rare people who doesn't mind living in the shadows. Doesn't mind having this place that's small because there's no selfish ambition in his heart. But don't get me wrong. Andrew will have his honors. Like all the apostles, he will reign over one of the tribes of Israel in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth after Jesus returns. Like the other disciples and apostles, he will reign over, over the tribes. He will, he will, his name will appear when you get to heaven and you go into the, the gates of the holy city. You're going to have one with Andrew's name on it. His name will be on one of the foundations. And in the meantime, he's got a wonderful golf course named after him. <laughs> it's true. If you golf, you know it's a wonderful course. It's named after the city in Scotland. And the St. Andrew's golf course is famous. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. It is said by tradition that he took the gospel north as far as Scythia. And so he becomes the patron saint of Russia as well. And then those people eventually migrated to Scotland. And all golfers know of St. Andrews. And so the Scots picked him as their patron saint for his openness, for his humility, for his faith. Andrew is simply an intimate disciple of Jesus Christ. He's always concerned about other people coming and knowing the Savior. A man of deep religious faith. One writer said, he is better suited for the quiet walks of life than the stirring thoroughfares. 
as Andrew. Church history will tell us that Andrew does become a preacher. I mean, that's what an apostle does. And he was given power later on to heal disease and cast out demons because God can make much of little. And he suffered for his faith in Christ. He suffered for his loyalty to the gospel. Tradition said that Andrew did a very dangerous thing. He led the wife of the provincial governor, the Roman governor, to Christ. And her husband was furious. He demanded that his wife recant her faith in Christ, and she wouldn't. So that governor had Andrew crucified. He had him crucified on an X-shaped cross. In the medieval times, it would look like this, you know? It's a, it's a piece of art from the medieval days, but a cross that's an X. Whenever you see an X-shaped cross in church tradition, it's St. Andrew's cross. It subsequently has been linked to him throughout church history. Tradition says he was suspended on the cross in agony for at least two days. And while he was there, he continued to preach the gospel to those who passed by. That took place in Achaia in southern Greece near Athens. Andrew's life, to some, may seem rather insubstantial, almost dull, but never forget that he had a whole lifetime of privilege. He got to do what he loved to do most, introduce people to Jesus. I thank God for the example of Andrew and for people like him, quiet, hardworking, but living under the radar with their sacrificial gifts, they accomplish a lot for the Lord. They might not be in the limelight, they might not get tons of recognition, but they don't need to because they are content just to serve the Savior. The only thing they want to hear the Savior say is, well done. You did a good job. This morning, may I introduce you to Jesus. He will not make your life easy, but he will give your life hope. When you believe you have your past forgiven and you have your future secured and you have someone to walk with you each day in life, Will you believe like Andrew that Jesus is the Messiah and he can keep his promise to provide for you eternal life? Because of what he did on the cross, he took the penalty and the punishment for your sin. And you, if you believe, can be a follower of Jesus just like Andrew. I'd love to introduce you this morning to Jesus. Have you ever believed? Let's pray. If you've never believed, you could just pray something like this or you can think about it. Put something on your connect and we can get together and talk about that. But if this morning you've never really believed or you're not really sure, you can just tell God something like this in your own heart. Father, I know that I've not followed and I know that I've messed my life up. And I come today to meet Jesus. I thank you that he died on the cross for my sin 
that he was raised to life to prove that sacrifice counts for me. And today I believe that what Jesus said, that he was the Messiah, that he can provide for me eternal life, I believe it to be true. And so today I want to believe and I want to meet this Jesus who changed Andrew's life. Father, be at work in all of our lives and our hearts that this morning we might see the example of Andrew and make it our own. That we would look for relationships. That we would see the bigness of the kingdom and the importance of faith and the necessity of humility. That we would be able to introduce people to Jesus this week. Because that Jesus has changed our lives. Be our vision. Be the driving heartbeat of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.